The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, as school breaks for the summer, I take a look at how white working class boys are actually doing the least well in school. And I also speak to two people who have been cancelled about where this tendency is going. And at the very end, Harry Mount, editor of The Oldie, tells me about his office romance. First up, it's not an argument commonly heard, but looking at the statistics, as Christopher Snowden from the IEA has done for this week's cover piece, a rather dramatic picture emerges of how white working class students, especially boys, do so much worse in school than BAME communities. Only 17% of white British pupils eligible for free school meals achieve a strong pass in English and maths, whereas students from Bangladeshi, Black African and Indian backgrounds in the same category are more than twice as likely to do so. This is also an effect that you see in university admission and on other stages of education. So are the white working class being left behind in this education? Christopher Snowden joins me down the line now, together with Mary Kernock-Cook, the former head of UCAS. So Christopher, can you tell us about what it is that white working class boys are doing, or rather not doing? Well, they're falling further and further behind in terms of educational qualifications and going to university. Falling behind girls, falling behind other ethnic groups, and the gap seems to be getting wider. And this is occasionally noted, sometimes when the GCSE results come out, it might get a a mention somewhere in the news article, but nothing ever seems to be done about it, nothing ever seems to be attempted. We don't have the kind of targets at university that we do for um, BME people, for example. So Oxford University, only a couple of weeks ago, was boasting about how it had um, been making steady progress, it said, steady progress in its efforts to make its campuses more representative of wider society. And that was on the back of their most recent intake of students, British students, not foreign students, but British students, 22% came from a black or ethnic minority background, which is great, but that's actually significantly above the proportion of black and ethnic minority people of that age in Britain. So it's more than steady progress. They've kind of exceeded their target in in practice, but at the same time, only 14% of those people came from the poorest 40% of households. So I'm, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not somebody who believes that the government has a, a, you know, the highest duty to make everybody equal. I don't think equality, equality of outcome is possible, and I think the means by which it would be attempted would be totalitarian. But it is interesting, I think, if, we, if, we, if we're going to have this uh, kind of, uh, these kind of targets, they should at least reflect the demographics of the country. They shouldn't, I don't think, actually exceed them because by implication that requires discrimination. Somewhere along the line you have to actually discriminate against the people who don't have the so-called protected characteristics. I mean it's just so interesting this because actually it's not just white working class boys who fall behind, it's it's boys overall. Hmm. And what's so interesting about that is, you know, we're used to thinking about north-south divide, rich-poor divide, you know, different ethnicities and so on. But boys come from 
the same communities, they've got the same parents, they go to the same schools as girls and they're taught by the same teachers, but somehow they just don't learn as much. And so somehow we've got an education system which disadvantages boys overall compared to, to girls. You know, so with all that kind of teaching that goes on, girls seem to learn better than boys and do better in, in tests and exams and more of them go to university. And then when you look at progression to university and find that actually it's the white group that proportionately uh, is kind of bottom of the of the pile in terms of going to university, then then you start to see that it's white boys and white boys from poorer backgrounds who, who really kind of lose out in that. But underlying all of this is something about how education isn't working as well for boys as it is for girls. How much that, sorry, to, I know I'm not here to ask the questions, but um, how much that do you think, Mary, is due to the kind of feminization of the profession? We've got 70% of teachers are women. In primary yeah. schools, I believe it's 82%. And that, of course, is a lot higher than it was years ago yeah and it's even even higher in early years and actually the gaps between boys and girls start you know right back right back at the beginning I mean lots of people have had a look at this and said it's not an issue but I I don't know I just feel instinctively that it it must be it must be an issue you know if boys aren't seeing role models and teachers who you know, they identify with in in that way, uh, it must have an impact. And certainly anecdotally, when I talk to people in schools, there's a feeling that that boys would do better with uh, with more male teachers. So, yeah, I, I continue to think that that is an issue. And I mean, teacher training, there's, there's twice as many female applicants. And then I think it's it's about two and a half times as many women placed um, in teacher training as as men and I you know I feel a bit like we have we have these initiatives don't we to get more girls into science and more girls into engineering and computer science and things like that and I I sometimes think well actually maybe we should have initiatives to get more men into teaching and social work and and nursing which are you know massively dominated by females and that that might help kind of level up how education works lower lower down the age range. Christopher, you write about how BAME students are overrepresented at universities, but when you look at the most prestigious universities like the Russell Group, including Oxbridge, these people are still underrepresented. So is it the case that we're, what we're actually seeing when, the, when we're talking about this overrepresentation is a, what people have said is a degree inflation or that people go to universities but not the good ones. And so that when you split it like that, that, that white working class boys are not actually as underprivileged as they seem. Well, I mean, that's obviously not true of Oxford University. I, I don't think it's true of Cambridge. I don't know about the Russell Group. I must admit I haven't, I haven't seen the, the figures of what you say uh, you know, may be true up to a point. But if we're talking specifically about working class boys, uh, you know, 57% of students are, are women now. That's quite a big difference. You know, the, the 533,000 people accepted to university in 2018 304,000 of them were, were female. Um, and we're not so hot on collecting data on class, but yeah, having more universities around and trying to send more people to university has obviously meant there's more working class people going to university than they would have done years ago. But it's still 
uh, and particularly at the top universities, it's still a middle-class thing, really. Chris is right, you know, there's about 40,000 men kind of missing from university um, overall. And what, what's interesting, you know, if you're interested in equality overall, kind of broadly speaking, rich versus poor, unless you tackle the the boy, the men issue, you're not going to tackle the rich-poor issue because about three-quarters of the gap in rich-poor is made up of, of missing men. And, you know, so this all gets kind of conflated into a into a, a much bigger issue that with this huge disparity in what's happening in, in boys' education and therefore their progression to to university is is actually contributing massively to the to the kind of inequality gaps between um between rich and poor. Um so in other words if you want to fix the rich poor gap you've got to fix the the boy problem. <laughs> Is there a worry that we're focusing too much on universities? Christopher, you write in your piece that universities are no longer the golden ticket that it once was. So maybe maybe it's a good thing that these young boys are going into apprenticeships rather than degrees that actually give them less earning potential later down the down the line. Yeah, it actually could be in, in many cases. I mean, a lot of people who go into the lower-ranked universities are, in my opinion, being sold a lemon. I think we're sending far, pe- far too many people to university. They're going to end up in an enormous amount of debt and they're not going to get a better job than somebody who didn't go to university. But that's kind of a different issue, really. I mean, the reason they're not going to university is they're not getting the grades in school, primarily. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a, it's a choice, particularly, for, for many of these lads. So the question is, why aren't they getting the grades in school? And... I, I wouldn't want anybody to interpret my article as being me saying, look, we've had the Black Lives Matter thing, but the real issue is, is with white people. That's not in the slightest bit what I'm saying. I, I can say I'm not opposed to equality in a way. One of the good things about equality is it shows you what is possible. So rather than looking at this as, you know, the white boys have fallen behind, let's look at the reasons why the ethnic minorities and the girls have climbed ahead. And let's try and learn something from that. It's a remarkable statistic that nearly half the children eligible for free school meals in inner city London are going on to university. You know, that's uh, about twice the rate in the rest of the country. But for white British boys, it's only 13%. You know, there are huge differences here. Mary, why, why do you think that is then, that these boys, and especially the poorer boys, are falling behind? That's a a really good question. I think the the sort of underlying issue is something to do with boys being less good at reading and less likely to engage, you know, with with reading stuff. You know, they they spend apparently a lot more time on, you know, video games and computer games and so on. They're much less likely to be reading than girls and that kind of shows up in their engagement with the curriculum at at school and you know so if you haven't got a high level of literacy you're unlikely to engage with a large part of the um of the of the curriculum and and indeed exams talk to any parent who's who've got sons and daughters and they'll and they'll tell you it's it's really hard to get boys to concentrate on their schoolwork so something's going wrong there and Christopher you say in this moment of our political discourse we're so concerned with equality but it doesn't seem like class is one of these sort of axes of treatment that we're really thinking of when we're thinking about gender and race and sexuality for example so is the solution to this to make class a protected characteristic as well and is that the government's role to do that 
I don't think so. I don't like this idea of protected characteristics in the first place, you know. So, no, I don't think making everything a protected characteristic is really the way forward. I mean, that would be the most equal thing to do, I guess. I mean, no, I, I, don't, I don't want quotas, I don't really want targets. I just want to learn the lessons, you know. I want to you know, see what, what is it about Chinese girls, for example, that makes them so astonishingly good at exams and maybe some of those things my mum can tell you christopher yeah <laughs> maybe you know the government can't actually do about some of these things maybe it, a lot of it just happens in the home the government can't get into the home and we just have to live with a certain amount of inequality and just think it's a good thing that these people are doing really well but as the white working class boys fall further and further behind you know it's not inevitable that they should be doing badly at school. They didn't used to do worse at school 50 years ago. So what's... It depends how you want to look at it. Either what's gone wrong for them or what's gone so well for everybody else. But either way, we can learn something. And Mary, of course, we're recording at this extraordinary time of a global pandemic where school's been out for so many months now. From your perspective as former head of UCAS, do you worry about the equality of students getting into universities at this time, given that a lot of it is dependent on predicted grades rather than actual grades? Yeah, I do worry. And um, I I think the key to how the grades all get awarded is um, how the schools have ranked their students. So they're predicting a grade and then they're also asked to put them in rank order. And I think that that process potentially could further disadvantage boys. And then on top of that, you've got the, you know, the boys and girls who've been stuck at home doing homeschooling or whatever. And I just feel that it's very likely that boys have been, you know, less disciplined and less able to kind of get on with online schoolwork or reading stuff without the kind of discipline and oversight of actually being in school. So, yeah, I I wouldn't be at all surprised if those gaps get worse again after this period. Christopher and Mary, thank you very much. The Spectators podcast now have a newsletter. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to get the Spectator's podcast highlights in your inbox every Monday. And next, as J.K. Rowling was trending on Twitter for all the wrong reasons in recent weeks, it reminded journalist Kevin Meyer of the time when J.K. Rowling joined in on a dog pile against him. He joins me now, together with Lionel Shriver, the Spectator columnist who wrote about Kevin last year. So Kevin, to start with, can you briefly tell us what happened to you? Three years ago, uh, at the end of July 2017, I wrote a, a very poor column for the Sunday Times at the Sunday Times' insistence about the pay differential between men and women in the BBC. And I referred to the fact that the two best paid women in the BBC were both Jewish. I did this in naivety because I'm well known in Ireland as being an extremely ardent supporter of Israel and I'm very well regarded by the Jewish population. So I didn't think about the alarm bells that would ring off. And I have to say that no one in the editorial circuit in the Sunday Times were aware of the problems that might arise. It erupted online sometime in the early hours of Sunday morning that I was an anti-Semite, a misogynist and an anti-Semite, and that rapidly mutated into being a Holocaust denier. And within hours, it had uh, traveled around the world that J.K. Rowling joined in and Chelsea Clinton joined in. And I think the numbers of people who were tweeting about me as the worst person in the world. I was number one item on the BBC News 
I actually managed to be ahead of North Korea firing a ballistic missile over Guam. And Lionel, you wrote about what happened to Kevin last year, but you yourself have been on the receiving end of the sort of witch hunt over a column you wrote for The Spectator on Penguin Random House. Yes, though I was gloriously oblivious to most of it because I am not on Twitter. I'm happily ignorant of a great deal of what was said behind my back. The only way I became aware of it was getting uh, repeated emails from friends of mine asking, are you all right? (laughs) They're not usually that solicitous. So I figured out something was up. And also I was mercifully let go from a short story contest conducted by a minor magazine that I didn't really want to do to begin with. And so then when they told me that I was being stepped down as a judge, I, I cheered. I have to say that it, looking back, I was in greater peril than I realized. The truth is that these explosions on the internet of indignation, they're getting worse and they're getting more effective institutions more fearful of them, and therefore institutions are more likely to act on axing the offending sinner. That's where the real danger lies. Ultimately, people can call you all kinds of names, and you're okay. I'm not one of those people who thinks speech is violence. So no matter what was said about me on Twitter, I'm still here, and any health problems I have have nothing to do with what someone said, you know. So in the big picture, that's relatively harmless. What is extremely dangerous is having, and I don't think that this would happen, and it didn't happen, the spectator saying, oh, you know, Lionel Shriver's too hot to handle, or we've decided she's a racist and her column is axed. The spectator is one of the last outfits out there to act in such a manner, I imagine. But I can picture a universe which is right next door to this one in which that would happen, even with a magazine of such integrity. I was just going to say, and of course, that's one of the reasons that Barry Weiss, former New York Times columnist who quit this week as we are recording, cited for quitting the New York Times because of that change in culture. But Kevin... And not just Barry Weiss. Of course. It's also Andrew Sullivan. Also a very distinguished journalist and essayist, and he had a uh, position with New York Magazine. He's written for everybody. And, you know, he's gay. You know, he's got one of the merit badges. But he, in the current political landscape, would be considered more conservative, and therefore he's not specially protected. He is apparently publishing the reasons for his resignation, and we'll find out. But he said that the reasons were self-evident, meaning that they have to do with cancel culture. Kevin, in hindsight, do you regret using the words that you did do in that column that got you in trouble? You said that Jews are not generally noted for their insistence on selling their talent for the lowest possible price. Obviously, that's a sentence that was taken out of context. But do you regret using those words in that combination? Of course I do, because it caused um, much indignation, especially in London, and much misunderstanding, because the last thing I'd want to do it doesn't serve my interest to insult people, or particularly people I admire. And that sentence served to do that. You have taken it out of context. It was a catastrophe for me. I was sacked publicly by News International. They didn't stand by me. And not merely that, just about every single Irish newspaper columnist joined in the lynch mob 
so did the Irish Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, who is twice blessed, being of mixed race and, and homosexual. And so did his Deputy Prime Minister, Francis Fitzgerald. No one can survive that kind of curse, and my career did not, and my reputation did not. It was an irrevocable and intensively irrevocable blow to what I was and what I would have been to this day. Although we should say that RTE, the Irish broadcaster, apologised last year for using those words about you. So obviously there is some recognition. No, only because I sued them. I took them right. to the highest court in the land. And the warning was, as Lionel has pointed out in her very fine piece about me, I stood to lose a fortune if I lost. I stood to lose over two million euros. That's not much less than two million pounds. Had the case gone to court, and I had lost. As it happened, the evidence that I was able to accumulate was simply irresistible, and RTE folded. But the most shocking thing is that the settlement, which was in um, six figures, was never reported by RTE News and never reported by the Irish Times. So most Irish people do not know that RTE folded entirely on the, the lie that I'm a Holocaust denier. Lionel, does it make you reconsider not just the jokes that you make as a columnist, but also the ideas that you explore and how you explore them? It doesn't. It probably should, if I were a little more self-protective, but I'm not. I am going to go down fighting, and I'm going to keep making jokes. And it's entirely possible that what finally does me in is something that I think is absolutely hilarious. And I think there would be worse ways to end a career. Place of glory. One thing I would note, however, the people who are arrayed against so-called cancel culture are sometimes accused of being hyperbolic. You know, it's true that people like me have sometimes pulled out comparisons to Maoist China or Stalinist Soviet Union. And these were movements that killed millions of people. And we haven't been killing, literally killing, millions of people. But these cancellations do involve assassination of a kind. And it's an assassination of a sort that the people who are demanding it know precisely how devastating it is. Because they're going for people who have serious careers, who are deeply invested in their work, who in many ways live for their work, And they know perfectly well that if they take someone like me and and make it so it's impossible for me to publish anything anywhere, something in me is going to wither up and die. And that is the intention. The better comparison than either communist regime is McCarthyite United States. Because in that case, any number of careers were devastated. They were ruined And by the way, an awful lot of them did not come back. You don't read about that very much. Besides which, you know, your life is finite. You destroy 10, 15 years of someone's life. What's left? I mean, I'm 63. Once I'm 85, I get to publish a column again. (laughs) Oh, boy. And so, you know, I'm not big on violent metaphor. Obviously, being killed in in a career sense, is not the same thing as being literally murdered. But the intention is to destroy about your life what you most value in it. 
And I guess listeners might be thinking, oh, what's the big deal? It's just disagreeing with your arguments. But I, the point you're making, Lionel, is that it's not just on Twitter. It's not just the discourse thing it has real impact on people's lives. And that's what the intention is as well. Kevin, finally, are you surprised that J.K. Rowling has fallen victim to this herself? Everyone is going to fall victim to this. And no one's going to be immune. That's what she should have realised when she decided to help in my destruction. And I don't agree with Lionel that it's not a, a serious, it's not just an individual thing. This is a, a civilizational thing. This is cultural. It's not possible for any worthwhile culture and any worthwhile civilization to survive what's going on. This civilization that we know, what we roughly call the best Christian civilization, is coming to an end if this process is not stopped. Lionel and Kevin, thanks very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And last, is it time to go back to the office? Harry Mount says so and talks about how much he loves the office in this week's Spectator. He joins me in the office now, in fact, together with director of the UK in a changing Europe, Anand Menon. So Harry, why don't you kick us off? Tell us about your office romance. Sadly, it's not a romance with a human being. It's actually a romance with the office itself. While so many people have been working from home and singing the praises of it, I've absolutely loved going into the office every day during lockdown. And I love every everything about day. it. Every single day, yeah. In, in, in central London, Fitzrovia, where my office is, which was very moving because it was so incredibly empty. So it was sad, obviously the terrible sadness of coronavirus. But... Going into the office sort of saved my sanity. I love everything about it. I love the bike ride in there. I love the feeling of professionalism and urgency that being in an office delivers that being in your sitting room doesn't. I even like things like the cellophane packs of post-it notes and notebooks and pens and paper. Just the whole air of professionalism. And the, and the main thing about it is that for all the brilliance of my colleagues who used to be largely working from home, but now several of them are in the office, it's so much quicker. Mm. If someone is there with you, you can say, can you change that um, spelling mistake on page 37? You don't have to email, wait. So it's ultimately more efficient. Anand, how's your lockdown been like? I think the way I put it is I like being at home, but I'm utterly rubbish at working from home. So, you know, being at home is great if I'm not working, but trying to work has been an utter struggle. Now, I'm not, I'm not quite as weird as wanting to be in an office by myself. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, that I struggle with a little bit, because I think for me, it's the people and the noise that I miss. I absolutely agree that getting things done in person is infinitely easier than getting things done by Zoom or phone call or anything else. And I just think you can resolve things in seconds in person that probably take four pointless phone calls or Zoom calls doing it virtually. So that I'm absolutely uh, on board with. But for me, it's a change of scene that I like. I write in coffee shops at the best of times and being stuck in front of this same bleeding desk day after day for months has basically done my head in. And I did my first trip to London yesterday since mid-March and I was a bit like a kid in Hamleys, to be honest. Everything about it, the train, Hyde Park, going to a coffee shop, you know, meeting my daughter for lunch. It was it was just superb. And so I'm very, very keen to start doing it again. Uh, I have to say, actually, I wasn't particularly productive work-wise yesterday because I was too busy sort of grinning inanely at everything and everyone that I saw. 
So, Harry, why do you think so many people don't want to go back to the office? And, and do you think you would have changed the way you did things if you had to get on the train, for example? Well, I do say in the article, it all depends on whether you enjoy your job. So I, I was a failed banker and a failed barrister, and I hated those jobs. And I would have loved working from home then. So I really like my job now. So that that's, that makes a huge difference. As Noel Coward said, uh, work is more fun than fun if you've got the right sort of work. And so, um, and also, I bicycle in. Uh, I live only about th- two or three miles from my office, so that also, is, I feel fantastic. Gets rid of all the morning feeling of self-loathing getting on my bike. So it would have been. Uh, I still actually haven't been on the tube or the bus because I very rarely do. Anyway, I've been on trains. They've been marvelously empty. But I completely understand why not everyone has my advantages of being able to, to bike for three miles into work. So I can see, particularly early on. And it's amazing is how much we've changed. I mean, I was nervous about the virus the same way that most of us were. I wouldn't have wanted to go on a tube or a bus in those early days. Now, if my bike was broken, I would go on them. So I completely sympathise with those people who don't want to come in on the tube or even come into an office. But I think, and, and, Anne's, and Anne's right, that um, it's a bit weird liking an empty office. I do prefer having other people in there. That Offices give a fantastic perfect form of social life there's more pressure to go out on the evening in the evening with friends to be entertaining have a Mm -hmm. good time the great thing about being in an office is you can do a bit of work do a bit of gossip go back to a bit of work you build up tremendous friendships and even it's quite good dare I say to have enemies in common with your allies in the office It's, it's, it's a wonderful place to develop a whole sort of life really I actually found that I was much more productive working from home because I didn't have anyone to chit chat to and, you know, it's good for productivity, but I was pretty bored by the end of the day, yeah. having worked. I mean, may, maybe you're one of those weird people with an attention span. Mine's about eight, nine minutes, I think, at best. So I tend to work in sort of eight, nine minute blocks and then I have to go and talk to someone. And if I'm home and my partner's out at work, then there's no one to talk to. And I just find it maddening. I mean, in the interest of full disclosure, I should say I'm pretty convinced I've had the virus because I was pretty ill for a couple of weeks in March. I didn't get a test, but I mean, I'm sure that shapes my attitude. But the other thing I should say, the the one frustrating thing about yesterday, my trip to London, was I discovered it's almost physically impossible to read while wearing a mask if you wear glasses, because they just kept steaming up. And that was really irritating. Have you got an antibody test yet, Anand? No. I think lots of people say that they have had it, don't they? Oh, you're accusing me of making this up. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. This is a classic uh, spectator conspiracy theory line now. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I had every symptom. I I had a temperature, which I I definitely didn't make up because we tested it. And very unlike me, I was asleep for 20 hours a day for the best part of 10 days. So I had something and I'd be very upset if it wasn't it. (laughs) I think there's another thing about being together in in physical form with each other is that uh, as well as gossiping and perhaps sometimes wasting your time, you do come up with ideas, which Mm. is so much so important to our world, isn't it? Absolutely. Reading and writing. And you could do it. Here we are, we're making dazzling conversations, brilliant ideas, and it would be even better if even all three of us were in the room together. I once met, uh, not to show off, but James Watson, as in Crick and Watson, the DNA finders, and he said he wouldn't have discovered DNA on his own and Crick wouldn't have discovered it on his own. It was because they were constantly checking each other. One of them would go down a, a rabbit hole and the other one would go, no, no, that's rubbish, and, and they'd keep each other in line. And that's the same in the best form of 
newspaper or magazine conferences is that you um, come up with new ideas, particularly the best editors, quite wild, weird ones, and they develop as you bounce them off each other. And mm. you can do that o- on Zoom. Zoom is a pretty amazing invention, isn't it? But I still think there is something quite weird and palpable about being in the flesh with people in the room. No, no, I agree. And there's something quite formal about Zoom. It's the invitation and someone letting yeah. you in. And, and actually, I find some of my best ideas have come from casual conversations about nothing much in particular. So it's not necessarily, let's sit down and talk about politics, but you're having a natter about something and all of a sudden something comes to you and between the two of you, you chat about it a little bit and there's, there's a really good idea there. And that just doesn't happen so much now. I completely agree. Sometimes somebody's just, you're just having a drink with them and it's nothing to do with work and they'll make a joke or something. You go, God, that's actually just very true, you know. Yes. Yeah. And Anand, in Harry's piece, he uh, quotes this survey that says nine out of 10 Brits want to keep working from home even when the pandemic is over. Not you, obviously, because you are immune already, but how much of people not wanting to go back to work is because they're, they're fearing the virus itself rather than the actual preference for working from home? Well, it's impossible to say, isn't it? I mean, you know, lots of people are genuinely sort of worried about it. I mean, I think in the world of universities, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I've talked to several colleagues who say, you know, imagine universities in the autumn where you have, you know, hordes of people in their early 20s not abiding by any of the social distancing rules because basically they're all out of their heads on booze. And then turning up to your lecture on the Tuesday and breathing all over you. I mean, you know, you know, there are age issues around this and there are people who are genuinely worried about it, I have to say. But uh, and there are some people, obviously, like you, Cindy, who, who, who believe that they are more they are more productive at home. I struggle with that one. But uh, I didn't want to be productive. I'd rather have uh, wasted my time with my colleagues. <laughs> There's also another good point. You're talking, Anand, about uh, young people and undergraduates. There was a really good letter in last week's Spectator from a reader who said it's really unfair, the whole idea of working from home on the young, those starting their careers, because how do you learn things except being in the flesh, with, uh, working with people, sometimes with brilliant people. I, I describe in the article working with a great WF Deeds, Bill Dees, who was 90, you know, fought in the war and had been a cabinet minister. It was amazing going into work with him. A lovely, lovely bloke. Also, actually, some of the monsters, nameless, I've worked with, I'm, I'm sort of grateful to them. It, it, it's made me a naturally rather weak, shy individual, made me actually stronger and tougher. So I think it's for the young starting off their careers to meet people, good and bad, in the flesh is really important. Thinking and working is about more than putting words on a page. It's about how you are and how you behave and how you interact. And you don't get any of that virtually. Whereas in an office, you're absolutely right. Whether you're talking to a student or talking to a politician or whatever else, you get so much more out of it by being in person that you know we're losing a lot I think yeah and do you think it has to be a creative profession that benefits from this I mean I've got friends who are in the civil service for example who have been really enjoying working from home and just sort of compartmentalizing their lives and having lots and lots of virtual meetings is that better for for that line of work I have to see for having watched the, the civil service for a few decades there's nothing more creative than the civil service in my book uh, quite often so uh, they'd fit into the creative bracket as well for me. I don't know, to be honest. I just think it's partly just that difference between introverts and extroverts, as far as I'm concerned, is that I really do feed off other people. I mean, I was talking to you before, Cindy, and I, was, I wasn't going to say this on the podcast because I think it reflects badly on me, but I will. I miss audiences. I miss audiences at events that you can, what, you can actually see them, see how they're reacting, see if they're falling asleep and you realise you ought to stop talking now. And doing these things on Zoom, you get none of that. You just get that rather soulless number at the bottom of participants that you watch mm. obsessively to see if it's ticking downwards. But that sort of 
interaction with the people who've turned up to listen is completely lacking and I miss that a lot. I don't think that reflects badly on you, Anand. Um, <laughs> and Harry, you finish your piece in pretty, I don't know, it's, it's a little bit pessimistic about the future of the office, but I think that the government might be changing their mind on it this week. In terms of asking people back. In terms of asking people back. I think they back. very much are. And if, if, you're, if you live and work in London like I do, uh, near the Spectator office in Westminster and in Fitzrovia in central London where my office is, it's very, very worrying financially for uh, businesses that I go into a really lovely Italian coffee shop where I've been going for three years and uh, they just opened now and uh, they can't survive at the moment on the, on the numbers coming in. They could survive, they, they do distancing, they could survive if it was full the whole time with that distancing. But so many people haven't come into yes. the neighbouring offices. And so uh, it's very, very worrying for people like that, particularly if they're not getting any um, rent deals. So that, that's what's most worrying about uh, the whole crisis in terms of um, offices. Secondary to that is, is, is the pleasure of going into an office. Harry and Anand, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as Lisa Nandy's diary, Sam Leith's elegy to her 17-year-old cat who passed away recently, and Lynn Barber on the pros and cons of being hacked. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening. The Spectators podcast now have a newsletter. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to get the Spectator's podcast highlights in your inbox every Monday.